This is Nick Dodge and Rachel Fields with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Dane County's mask mandate will expire on March 1st, the local public health agency announced today, citing decreasing rates of COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations. Effective March 1st, face coverings will no longer be required in public indoor spaces. Face coverings will still be required in some spaces, such as public transportation, to comply with federal requirements. The order expiration now has school districts facing a decision on whether to follow the Public Health Madison and Dane County decision or to continue their own mandates. The Capital Times reports that a spokesperson from the health department yields the decision to districts and encourages them to, quote, consult with their medical advisory boards to help make a decision that is right for them, quote. After legal volleying, the state Supreme Court has barred the use of absentee ballot boxes for the April 5th spring elections. The Capital Times reports that the state's highest court made the decision last Friday. The court was divided four to three, with the swing vote coming from Justice Brian Hagedorn. The conservative-leaning justice had sided with the court's liberal justices in a previous divided decision to allow absentee ballot boxes for the spring primary elections on February 15th. Friday's decision originated from a 2021 suit filed by the conservative law firm the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, representing two voters from Milwaukee. The University of Wisconsin system president and campus chancellors will receive a 2% pay raise, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. The University of Wisconsin system board of regents approved the raise last Thursday. UW system president Tommy Thompson will acquire an increased salary of 499121 until the end of his presidency on March 18th and plans to donate his raise to charity. Thompson's replacement, Jay Rothman, will earn $550,000 annually once he assumes the presidency on June 1st. The Dane County Sheriff's Office has given a small update on the shooting of Quadrin Wilson earlier this month. 21 officers from five different agencies were involved in the arrest of Wilson, including the Madison Police, the Federal Drug Enforcement Agency, and the State Department of Natural Resources. Officials say that two agents from the State Department of Criminal Investigations fired their weapons during the incident and were not wearing body cameras. A spokesperson from the State Department of Corrections told Madison 365 that they had opened an apprehension request the day Wilson was arrested, but before the DCI had made contact. They say the request was due to an allegation that Wilson had engaged in behavior that violated the terms of his probation. Tomorrow is the spring primary, but there will be no local election in the city of Madison as no local races have more than two candidates. Other municipalities in Dane County, though, will see primaries in certain races. Tomorrow's spring primary elections in Dane County will narrow down school board seats in Barneveld, Columbus, Lodi, Mount Horeb, and New Glarus. The Wisconsin State Journal reports varied race numbers between the villages, with 11 candidates vying for the three available seats on the Mount Horeb School Board, while three candidates face off for the Town of Brigham seat in Barneveld. And now on to today's top stories. 
The Dane County Jail Consolidation Project has been in the works for years, but has been on hold due to the rising cost of labor and construction materials leading to the price tag for a new jail to skyrocket. Earlier today, Dane County Sheriff Calvin Barrett urged the county board to approve additional funding and help move the project forward. WORT producer Nate Wegehout has more. Earlier today, Dane County Sheriff Calvin Barrett held a press conference to urge the Dane County Board to approve additional funding to build a new jail. A plan to consolidate the Dane County Jail was first approved in 2019 and was originally estimated to cost around $148 million. But as the price of labor and materials went up during the pandemic, that original plan would now cost an estimated $24 million more. While several options have been proposed for the project to try and keep cost down. Ultimately, this Thursday's resolution would be to continue the original plan and approve the additional $24 million. The goal of the project is to close down the jail in the city-county building, which was originally built in the 1950s, and consolidate other locations. Sheriff Barrett has called the current jail facilities inhumane and, quote, borderline unconstitutional. Today, he framed the project at today's press conference as he stepped towards criminal justice reform. The city county building is doing exactly what it was designed and built to do. And that is be harsh, that is be inhumane, and be a reactionary punishment to crime. In 2022, we have a new philosophy on criminal justice reform. The proposed jail would hold 922 beds for residents, a reduction of around 90 beds from the current city-county jail. The city-county jail also has no medical or mental health beds, and those experiencing medical and mental health emergencies are held in solitary confinement cells. Barrett says that the new jail would help to treat jail residents with respect. Criminal justice reform calls for us to focus more on mental health responses to our justice-involved individuals. Indeed, this consolidation project will, as it will have 100% more mental health beds than we do right now. Criminal justice reform calls for us for appropriate medical facilities for those who are incarcerated. Indeed, this consolidated project will do that, as it will have 100% more medical beds than we currently do right now. Criminal justice reform calls for programming, recreational space, and educational areas for those who are incarcerated. Indeed, the jail consolidation project will have exercise and spiritual need areas and rooms for rehabilitative programming uh, and in-person visitation at each housing. The resolution to approve additional funding was passed by the Dane County Personnel and Finance Committee last week to go before the full board, but it will go without the recommendation of the committee after it failed to receive the required votes to move forward with approval. The vote for full approval was stopped by Supervisor Patrick Miles, who had concerns about sending the resolution with a full recommendation. He says that while he fully supports the jail consolidation project, they have to be realistic with how much they intend to borrow for the project. There's a budget amendment that's it's based on borrowing authority for $24 million. That number is based on an estimate each generated from construction design documents being 60% complete back, I think it was last August, and the county executive had asked for that early estimate. Generally, estimates aren't done until you reach 95% complete because there's just simply too many variables to get an accurate estimate at that early point. And so that's, on a pragmatic side, one of my issues is we're basing that on a number that I think is 
probably going to be low. Earlier this month, Dane County Board Chair Annalise Eicher called for a, quote, reality check about the many constraints facing the long controversial project. Dane County Supervisor Melissa Ratcliffe, who brought the resolution for additional funding, says that her goal for Thursday's vote is to get people out of the city-county jail as quickly as possible. The longer that the members of county board continue to want to look at more data and to research and study any impacts that have occurred um, to that may help reduce our jail population, the longer that people in our jail will suffer. As a friend of mine once stated, it's a case of paralysis by analysis, and we need to stop analyzing everything and start building this new jail consolidated facility. We need to stop having our residents suffer. The full Dane County Board will vote to allow the additional funding for the project at their meeting this Thursday at 7 p.m. and will need to pass a three-fourths vote by the board. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. Last week, a federal judge reinstated protections for gray wolves across most of the lower 48 states, including Wisconsin. While the species will regain its former protections, Experts are urging wildlife agencies to learn from what they say were missteps in managing wolves. Jonah Chester from the Wisconsin News Connection has more. A federal judge has restored endangered species protections to gray wolves across much of the lower 48, including Wisconsin. While conservation groups cheered the decision, some experts are urging states to learn from what they argue was mismanagement of wolf populations. Adrian Trevis with the Carnivore Coexistence Lab at the University of Wisconsin-Madison says wildlife management strategies give preference to a small subset of the population, hunters. He argues current standards for large carnivore management are based on either outdated or false science. Wisconsin gives us an immediate current example of that where wolf management was largely devoid of the latest science and didn't use the best available, although it was placed in front of the agency. While the season's wolf hunt was placed on hold due to a lawsuit, last February's hunt ended with 218 wolf deaths, blowing past the quota of 119. Hunters and their advocacy groups argue the wolf population has stabilized in recent years and that states should manage the species, not the federal government. Trevis and other environmental advocates are calling for a new wildlife management policy based on the public trust doctrine, that certain resources be preserved for the public and future generations. Under this model, Trevis says managing wildlife would be a cooperative effort between states, tribes, and the federal government. If we stop thinking about wildlife as owned, but more as a legacy asset, that's probably the thinking that's appropriate. So national parks are also legacies, assets in the same way. Kevin Bixby with the group Wildlife for All agrees the current method of wildlife management is out of step with modern ecological knowledge. He also thinks states should abolish or significantly reform policy setting wildlife commissions, which he says are often comprised of political appointees, and change the funding mechanisms for wildlife agencies. Hunters like to say that they pay for conservation because agencies have historically and still get a good portion of their revenues from the sale of hunting and fishing licenses. Wisconsin's Wildlife Commission, the Natural Resources Board, has seen its fair share of controversy. Its former chair, Frederick Prane, an appointee of former Republican Governor Scott Walker, has for months refused to step down from the board to make way for a new member appointed by Democratic Governor Tony Evers. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. As the pandemic continues to affect every aspect of our lives and people continue to struggle to pay rent, 
DaneCore 2.0 is here to help save people from eviction. First started in February of last year, the city announced last week that the Rental Assistance Program will receive an additional $35 million to provide to renters in need in Dane County. But some people are having issues accessing those funds, as long wait times and hard-to-reach providers keep some renters away from the funds they need. WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with Lynette Rhodes, a supervisor with the program, earlier today. I'm on the line with Lynette Rhodes, supervisor with the Madison Community Development Division. Lynette, thank you so much for talking with me here today. Thanks for having me. So to start things off here, can you tell me what is DaneCore 2.0 and what does DaneCore do? Sure. Um, so DaneCore has been the community's emergency rental assistance. It actually kicked off in February of 2021 under Tenant Resource Center. So at the time, the city of Madison and Dane County provided funding to Tenant Resource Center to provide emergency rental assistance in our community for households that were that had rent arrears. The Tenant Resource Center operated that program until September of 2021. At that time, the city and Dane County received additional funds, and our elected officials wanted us to expand um, the number of partners that were helping us administer the Dane Corps program. And so in September, we expanded the program, and um, now Urban Triage assists in um, supporting the Dane Corps, what we renamed 2.0, Dane Corps 2.0. Urban Triage works with tenants outside of the city of Madison. Um, and then Community Action Coalition is providing services for folks inside the city of Madison. Tenant Resource Center is still involved, um, and they support us in our eviction defense program. They are um, receiving emergency rental assistance funds really focused on ensuring that people that are in the court system have legal representation when they are experiencing an eviction. So our expansion from DaneCore to 2.0 um, was really about bringing in other community partners that are invested in our community and invested in this um, you know, mission of keeping people stably housed. In order to do that, the city of Madison worked to secure a new database system so that all of these partners can be kind of working on various applications at the same time. That was an important step for us as there are a lot of federal requirements that we have to keep track of. And when various people are working on the programs, a shared database is key for us to ensure that these funds are being used in a way that we can report back to the U.S. Treasury, which is all the fun behind the scene things uh, that no one sees when implementing a very big program, but are very important to keep us in compliance. So the emergency rental assistance, again, started as rental arrears. In September, we expanded it. So we are now serving households at higher income levels, and we are looking at supporting eligible households with forward rent and utilities as well. Um, our main goal here is to keep assisting and making sure that households in Dane County and the city of Madison can t maintain housing and that, you know, especially if they're experiencing financial hardship, that, that housing piece is covered. So you mentioned how you expanded in September after you got some additional funds. And now last week, you got an additional, I believe it was around $35 million there as well. So I want to ask, what 
is this money going to be used for? What does this additional funds mean for the program? Sure. So, yes, we, both the city of Madison and Dane County, have requested additional funds from the U.S. Treasury, and we've received that award from the U.S. Treasury. So, as of today, about um, a little over $11.5 million has gone out in the Dane Corps 2.0 program. So again, since September of 2021, those are funds that have gone to support community members. We've asked for the additional funds to ensure that the remaining applications in the system can get funded throughout the year as well. So this is an opportunity for us to secure additional funding to pretty much run this program at least until the end of 2022. And during this time, we are continuing to seek um, additional funding to continue into 2023 if funds are available from the U.S. Treasury. Um, It's an important piece as we know that households are still facing financial hardships during this pandemic. And so we want to make sure that this rental assistance is available to give insurance to tenants and more importantly, to give insurance to landlords who are still seeking payment to know that we are there to support them as well. And so we are working on making sure these rent arrears and that their tenants are stably housed. So last month, the Capital Times reported that some people were not getting access to the rental assistance from Dane Corps 2.0 due to long wait times and hard to reach providers, among other things. So what are you doing to try and help those who are having some difficulty accessing those funds? Absolutely. We, we heard um, from individuals that have ha- been having some barriers Um, I think one thing is a little bit of education. We would like to proactively make sure that individuals know that there are different ways to access our providers. Urban Triage, for example, runs a call center. So they are available only during the hours that their call center is open, 8 a.m. to 12 p.m., Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then the other couple days of the week, they really spend their time processing the applications that are in their pipeline. CAC, Community Action Coalition, is doing it a little different. Their kind of intake process is to call the general number, and then if individuals press one and get um, information on Dane Core, they will hear a pre-recorded message that a lot of the times is able to answer individuals' questions. If that pre-recorded message does not answer individuals' questions, CAC would like individuals to email them or call their main intake number. At that point, they can leave voicemails on that main intake number. The importance of that is CAC is looking at kind of bringing them into their general intake to see if they qualify for some of their other programs. So I think that has caused a little confusion in the community of people having kind of barriers of accessing since our providers are doing it just a tad bit different, but sometimes different is okay. And I think um, it's a way for us to see what is working and not working in our community as we're constantly readjusting our program and trying to be responsive to the community. In that of trying to be responsive, we have heard about you know the long delays in the applications um, and we are consistently trying to kind of go through the processing that is done by our agencies and support them. One of the things that we recently identified of kind of slower processing is 
multiple applications in the system. In, in a different way of how Dane Core, the original version of the program, where at Tenant Resource Center you had to submit multiple applications, that is not how this program works. A landlord should only submit one application per property that they manage um, that has a W-9 attached to it. And the same thing, a tenant should only submit one application. When a tenant's application is approved, um, they can receive an email then in the future asking for additional funds through that same application. Um, and so what we um, have kind of looked at with those processing times is ways that we can provide better education to the public where we're going through duplicate applications and trying to merge them and trying to find them, really trying to encourage the one application. And we hope to do a better job of explaining that and working with our pr providers to merge some of those applications to streamline the process. Well, Lynette, we are running up against the clock a little bit here. So just to sort of close things off, where can people find more information on DaneCore 2.0? Absolutely. We have created um, one website um, for both the city and the county, and that is DaneCore.org. I've been talking with Lynette Rhodes, supervisor with the Madison Community Development Division, about DaneCore 2.0. Lynette, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me again today. Thanks for having us. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. All of this week's city and county public meetings on Forward Lookout. Bridging the Gap gets ready for Valentine's Day, and two new movies ahead of Oscar season. But now we'll take a quick break, back in a flash. The time is now 6.33 and you are listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Nick Dodge, here with my co-host, Rachel Fields. Thanks for joining us. For a preview of what's happening in local government this week, we'll turn it over to ForwardLookout.com's Brenda Conkle and WORT volunteer Dylan Brogan. All right, it's Monday. That means we're speaking with Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com about what's happening this week in local government. We'll start with Dane County, and all, all these meetings are virtual unless we say otherwise. Tuesday at 8.30, we have the Commission on Sensitive Crimes. We don't hear about uh, this commission too often. What is this about? Yeah, um, so usually it's a bunch of updates from various agencies. The thing that I find interesting on this agenda is that they will be hosting an annual candidate forum for judges seeking re-election to respond to questions about sensitive crimes. So it's always good to, you know, the judges often run unopposed, so it's good to see some people having some interest in, in that election and, and pushing some issues that are important to them. Yes, and then uh, and if they do retire, they retire midterm and someone gets appointed and all of a sudden we have an unelected incumbent. Exactly. Yes. One of these days, we're going to figure that out. All right, 1.30. Um, ah, let's skip that one, Brenda. How about we go to 3.30 and we talk about the tree board. That's Tuesday, 3.30, tree board. So tree board is always a very busy committee with lots of things on their agenda, lots of updates, lots of um, work groups that are working on various things. Um, a lot of times they are just um, 
figuring out how to get the word out about their work. Um, this time they will be getting a presentation about the tree canopy in Dane County. And then um, they're, they're continuing to work on their website and, and other public service announcements. And on Thursday, 5.30, we have the Executive Committee of the Dane County Board, followed by uh, the full, all 37 members of the Dane County Board, and going to be kind of a bit of a meeting. It's, it's a, it's, there's a lot happening on Thursday, so uh, let's just get right to that. Sure. At uh, 5.30, the Executive Committee will be um, uh, approving a resolution to support Bill 886, which is a t creating a task force on missing and murdered African-American women and girls. And then they'll also be looking at the county executive appointments. Those two items will also be on the county board agenda for that evening. They also at the county board meeting will be looking at um, tax delinquent properties. They'll also be looking at uh, the Dane County Jail Consolidation Project. They have a, a, a resolution there to amend the budget for 2022 um, and increase borrowing. And then they are also going to be looking at um, potentially filing a lawsuit against companies that um, were responsible for PFAS in the soils in Dane County. Oh, wow. So big, big moves happening. Yeah, a lot more interesting than last time. <laughs> yes. And, uh, you know, you uh, the, the jail consolidation process, like uh, they have to increase the funding or we're going to be stalled out again. Um, so in the, the sheriff held a press conference yesterday basically asking the board to do it. I don't think anybody really knows what's going to happen, which is a bit unusual. Yeah, it is unusual. And, you know, I think in the past there was a lot of support and now people are starting to ask more questions and wondering if it's really worth it, especially after COVID where we saw the numbers go down in the jail and, and didn't see a huge impact in the community. So it does seem like there's some alternatives that could be used. Well, I am working on a story about this, which I guess is why it, I'm saying more than I usually do about it. But I, I heard from someone who worked very hard on the original 149 or $143 million proposal to, to, you know, to basically eliminate the city county building jail on the top two floors of, of city hall, which um, everyone agrees is out of date and inhumane. Uh, and, the, and this particular supervisor who obviously uh, was support in the project in the past is not voting for, for this uh, to move forward. So that, that tells you something. It certainly does. There's definitely been a, a big change in the way people have looked at this project. And a new sheriff lobbying it, so we'll see. Yes. <laughs> All right, and the city of Madison, we will turn to that now. And uh, tonight at 5 o'clock, already in session, is the Transportation and Policy and Planning Board. Yep, they're talking, well, they'll be getting their annual report, their annual operations report. They're also going to be looking at um, reserving some space for streets in the Oscar Meyer Special Area Plan. Um, they'll also be looking at the streetery um, cafe licenses and looking at if they want to permanently expand that program. And then they're going to be looking at green streets and the update on the Let's Talk Streets if you participated in those events. Okay, Let's Talk Streets. And also meeting tonight, uh, starting at 530, is the Police and Fire Commission. They're going to be uh, promoting um, several officers to detective or investigator. I wonder what the difference is. That's, I should look into that. Um, but also, they're going to be talking about the new fire chief, but it's in closed session. So what can you tell us, Brenda? Well, they'll be getting their regular updates from the fire department and the police department. They're uh, linked in my blog if you want to take a look. Um, a lot of it is about the hiring processes for both of the, those departments. And then, yes, they'll be talking about the fire chief candidates and the final interview process. 
And then they're meeting again the next day on Tuesday at four o'clock to continue evaluating the candidates for fire chief. So they're um, moving along quite quickly with that process. All right. I hear a cat, but that's okay. We like cats. Um, yes, a kitty. <laughs> why don't uh, you also serve on the Public Safety Review Committee, and uh, are you on the Budget Subcommittee? I am on the Budget All right. Well, that meets at 1 o'clock tomorrow, uh, and you're also electing chair and vice chair of, of, of the subcommittee, um, but this sets the Public Safety Review Committee, uh, the Budget Subcommittee, which meets at 1 o'clock tomorrow. So tell us more about it, Brenda, since you're involved. Sure. Um, I chaired that committee for two years in a row. Um, in 2020, we did a really good job of like getting lots of information out in a very thorough report. We tried to uh, repeat that for the 2021 process, and that did not work out so well. So we're going to be looking at what went well the first year, what didn't go so well the second year, and how can we make sure that as we get ready for next year's budget process, um, that we can get our report completed on time and have an impact on the budget process. Moving now to Thursday at 10 a.m., another subcommittee, the Executive Subcommittee of the Police Civilian Oversight Board, will be meeting virtually, and they still need to hire that independent police monitor, so they'll be talking about that, I I imagine, right? Yep, they are um, getting an update on the recruitment process. They did decide to go with an outside um, group to help them do this recruitment. They're also going to be looking at how to spend the remaining funds that they got from from Nicole Consulting, and then they're going to look at an annual report for the board. And finally, we'll just quick touch on the Landlord and Tenant Issues Committee, which meets on 5 p.m. on, on Thursday. Um, they'll be taking a look at the Housing Forward update. That's the um, biannual plan that the City of Madison does around housing. Um, so they'll be getting an update for, from the Community Development Division, Lynette Rhodes. Um, they'll also be looking at um, outreach efforts that they can do around retaliation and tenants' rights. They'll actually be talking with the deputy mayor, uh, Katie Crowley, from the mayor's office. Um, so that, that should be um, interesting to see if that kind of elevates the discussion. And then they will also be looking at um, manufactured home lot rentals, as well as looking at revising the rent abatement program um, and kind of looking at it through our racial equity lens. Yes, and uh, Katie Crawley, the deputy mayor, she was uh, she served in the Soglin administration too, so not many deputy mayors um, get held over, right? Or, or am I wrong about that? Oh, yeah, absolutely right. Um, she served, I think, twice in his administration, yeah. so maybe three times, who knows? Um, but yeah, it, it is unusual to see somebody who's held over from the previous administration. Yes. Well, better known a bureaucrat. Maybe we should start that one. <laughs> All right. Don't tell Shali or she'll make us do a podcast. All right. <laughs> Brenda Conkle, uh, she puts together uh, on her blog, The Forward Lookout, um, all the meetings and agendas and, and convenient links, and it's a real service to the community that makes it uh, more accessible to, to understand and to learn what's happening about city government. So check it out if you want. Brenda, thank you for all your hard work. You're welcome, Dylan. On this week's The Past Isn't Past, feature contributor Harry Richardson takes us back to 1946 and how a sailor's strike in India helped to bring an end to British colonial rule. Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time, for our brothers and our sisters up and down that picket line, for the unnamed and unnumbered who struggle brave and long, for the union men and women standing up and standing strong. This Saturday... February 19th marks the beginning of the Royal Indian Navy Mutiny of 1946. 
over 1,100 ratings, or sailors, of the HMIS Tower and the Royal Indian Navy, RIN, Signal School in Bombay, now Mumbai, declared a hunger strike, triggered by miserable working conditions and mistreatment of Indians by the British officers. Most Americans know only about Gandhi's nonviolent Quit India movement, but there were other important forces at play. P. V. Chakra Borti, former Chief Justice of Kolkata High Court, who was acting governor of West Bengal at the time, described correspondence between himself and Prime Minister Clement Attlee in 1956. The Quit India movement of Gandhi practically died out before 1947, and there was nothing in the Indian situation at the time which made it necessary for the British to leave India in a hurry. Why, then, did they do so? Attlee gave several reasons. One was Nataji Subho's Chandru Bo's Indian National Army, which weakened the British Army, and the other was the Royal Indian Navy Mutiny. When Chakraborty asked him about the impact of Gandhi's 1942 Quit India movement, Atlee Riley remarked with a smile, minimal. The strike was also called a slowdown, which meant the ratings would carry out their duties slowly. Infuriated, the commander of the ship F.M. King reportedly addressed the naval ratings as sons of coolies and used the B-word, which further inflamed the situation. The morning after, somewhere between 10,000 and 20,000 sailors joined the strike, as did shore establishments in Karachi, Madros, Calcutta, Mandapan, Vice Akhapatim, and the Andaman Island. Though the immediate cause was the demand for better food and working conditions, the action soon turned to the wider demand for independence from British rule. The protesting sailors demanded the release of all political prisoners, including those from rebel Indian National Army, INA, action against the commander for ill-treatment and using insulting language, pay equal to their British counterparts, demobilization of Indian personnel with provisions for peacetime employment, release of Indian forces in Indonesia, and better treatment of subordinates by their officers. The Royal Indian Navy, RIN, strike came at a time of rising Indian nationalism. Between 1943 and 1945, the RIN suffered nine mutinies on board various individual ships. Then, in January of 1946, British airmen stationed in India had their own Royal Air Force revolt, mainly over the slow speed of their demobilization after the war. In early February 1946, mutinies broke out at several Royal Indian Air Force bases around the country. British officials noted dissatisfaction over British rule was rapidly growing within the bureaucracy and the police force, as well as in the armed forces itself. The winter of 1945-46 saw three violent upsurges in Calcutta in November of 1945 over the rebel army trials, then in February of 1946 again in Calcutta over the sentencing of rebel officer Rashid Ali, and finally the sailors' uprising in Bombay. The naval strikers sought support from the major anti-colonial organizations but the Indian National Congress and the Muslim League refused since it upset their negotiations with Britain and had the potential to dislodge their political positions in a new Indian government. Only the Communist Party of India gave its full support and helped organize a city-wide strike in Bombay. By February 22nd, a good portion of the city was shut down, but violence flared up. 
by the end of the day, 63 people had been killed, mainly by the police. There were also strikes in the city of Madros, and the Royal Indian Air Force across the province of Punjab witnessed a mass general strike. In Bombay, the Congress Party delegation brokered a deal with the strike committee, promising them fair treatment. The strike committee, whose HMIS Tilwer ship had been attacked by British naval forces, caved in. Once the crisis was over, the Brits promptly reneged on the deal. The strikers faced court-martial and imprisonment on surrender. Worse still, they received no support from the government of India or Pakistan. None of the rebellion's leaders were allowed to rejoin the military of either country, but these strikers played a key role in India's independence. And that is our story for today. For WRT's The Past is the Past, I'm Harry Richardson. It's Valentine's Day, and in the modern age, people have more options than ever to find love with dating apps and websites. On this week's Bridging the Gap, feature contributor Teresa Yen explores the history of online dating and how the pandemic has changed relationships for everyone. Tinder Swindler is a new Netflix documentary that just dropped this past week. The documentary tells a story of a man who uses dating apps as a means to scam billions of money from women he meets on the app. Meeting people on the internet seems sketchy, but it seems that more people are becoming accustomed to this new way of meeting people. Tinder, Bumble, Hinge, and Raya are just a few examples of the popular apps that are out there. There are also queer dating apps, such as Grindr and Her. Why are there so many dating apps out there? Perhaps it's because there are so many different types of relationships that one app can't satisfy everyone's needs. As technology advances, it seems that there will only be more and more ways for people to meet. In this week's edition, we'll be going back in time and explore how the internet has changed the dating game for everyone. This is Bridging the Gap, a weekly feature dedicated to exploring the generational differences between Gen Z and other generations. A PBS infographic details that the beginnings of online dating date back to the 1980s. The bulletin board systems aka BBS, was the first internet platform for online chatting. The dating site Matchmaker was then launched on BBS, making it one of the first internet dating sites. In 1998, the movie You Got Mail popularized the idea of online dating. I turn on my computer. I go online. Welcome. Welcome. And my breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You You got got mail. mail. Internet dating sites started popping up all over the internet in the 1990s. Kiss.com was the first modern dating site, followed by Match.com and FriendFinder. In the 2000s, eHarmony was launched and became one of the biggest online dating sites, claiming that it successfully brought 80,000 couples into marriage annually. Dating sites for specific demographics like Christian Mingle also started to pop up. In 2007, OkCupid and Zoosk rose in popularity and became the main site for online dating. So why are more and more people becoming inclined to meet people online as opposed to meeting in person? According to Stanford's sociology professor Michael Rosenfeld, he finds that, quote, the online dating systems have much larger pools of potential partners compared to the number of people your mother knows or the number of people your best friend knows. Dating websites have enormous advantages of scale. 
even if most of the people in the pool are not to your taste, a larger choice set makes it more likely you can find someone who suits you." End quote. Rosenfeld has also noted that over the years, the technology behind internet dating or networking has improved and expanded, and the stigma behind meeting people on the internet is slowly starting to wear off. With social networks becoming an essential part of newer generations, it is not abnormal to talk to someone over the internet before you meet in person. Online dating is also a great tool for LGBTQ members. Pew Research Center reports that dating sites allow people to narrow down the criteria they are looking for and in these cases specify the gender of partners they are looking for. These sites also make it easier for queer folks to seek out love in a community where people can relate and not judge. During the pandemic, online dating has become even more prevalent as people are stuck at home with no way of meeting new people. Some dating apps have even pushed out a video chat function for people who meet on apps to set up a virtual date. The uncertainty of life changes and the concerns over health and safety have changed the way many view relationships. Katie Lang from Time finds that dating apps geared towards finding long-term relationships have become more popular during the pandemic. Matches single in America studies show that the pandemic has pushed people to shift from dating casually to dating intentionally, with more people using dating apps to find genuine connections instead of casual hookups. Dating apps and websites are just new ways to meet people. Whether it works out or not is all up to you. If you're struggling to meet new people in real life, why not try a dating app? You might be pleasantly surprised. For Bridging the Gap and WORT News, I'm Teresa Yen. It's Oscar season, which means that feature contributor Harry Richardson gets us ready for the best movies of the year. On this week's Monday Movie Review, Richardson looks at the new Netflix movie The Power of the Dog, which is raking in the awards at this year's Oscars, and Death on the Nile, based on the Agatha Christie novel. Twenty-five years since our first run together. 1900 and nothing. It's a long time. That was a clip from the trailer for The Power of the Dog, written and directed by Jane Campion, about toxic masculinity in 1920s ranch country, Montana. This movie is beautifully filmed and acted, but is ultimately pretty bleak and sad. It's adapted from a 1967 novel by Thomas Savage. The movie just received 12 Oscar nominations, the most of any film this year. Those include Best Picture, Best Director for Campion, and Best Actor for Benedict Cumberbatch, his second nomination. Cumberbatch plays Phil Burbank, the older of two wealthy ranch-owning brothers. The film crackles with tension from the start between Phil and his younger brother, George, Jesse Plemons, nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Phil is a bully toward the taciturn George and the host of ranch hands. The ranch is hard work and Phil knows every task and shirks from none of them. They drive some cattle to a nearby town and stay overnight at a sort of basic boarding house where they meet the proprietor, the widow, Rose, Kristen Durst, Best Supporting Actress nominee, and her gentle teenage son, Peter Cody Smith Fee, also nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Phil is verbally abusive to both, bringing them to tears in the kitchen. All the ranch hands and Phil have a good laugh, except for George. George tries to gently comfort Rose. 
One thing leads to another, and they are soon married, much to the anger of Phil, who seems jealous of Rose. He insists that she just married George for his money. He soon makes Rose truly miserable, and she starts drinking. Then Rose's son, Paul, comes to stay for the summer. He has been off to college. At first, Phil takes up where he left off with Paul. Paul walks past a group of ranch hands, who use a number of pejorative terms toward him, assuming he's gay. Then the story takes a surprising turn. Phil seems to change, smoothly apologizing to Paul. Phil seems to take him under his wing, teaching him to ride and confiding in him. Or is he manipulating Paul? Or is Paul more than he seems to be? The movie's dialogue and music by Johnny Greenwood expertly build up the tension from the first scene to the last. The cinematographer, Ari Wagner, has given us an evocative countryside with Campion's native New Zealand filling in for 1920s Wyoming. The director's ending, unlike the novel, is ambiguous and disturbing. Campion, who has done several films focusing on women and sexuality, sexual repression, particularly the piano and the more recent Portrait of a Lady, shows with this film that she also understands the male side of these issues. It just started showing on Netflix and is worthy of its Oscar nominations. Now for something a little less serious, a murder mystery based on an Agatha Christie story. Someone is dead. The crime is murder. The murderer is one of you. That was a clip from the trailer for Death on the Nile, directed and starring Kenneth Branagh in another tale of the world's greatest detective, Hercule Perrault. If you enjoyed his earlier Agatha Christie adaptation, Murder on the Orient Express, 2017, you'll probably like this one. This film features a large ensemble cast, but smaller than the one in the book, with screenwriter Michael Green making some minor changes and some big ones. The cast is more inclusive with soulful jazz singer Salome Otterborn, a marvelous Sophie Okoneda playing a character that was a romance novelist in the book, and her business manager and niece, Rosalie Letitia Wright. Rosalie is in love with Perot's friend and confidant, Bulk, Tom Bateman. Another big change, Perot is given a grim backstory with a black-and-white scene at the beginning with a younger Perot in World War I. Flash forward to the present, and Perot is a witness to a steamy nightclub scene that sets up our story. Then he goes vacationing in Egypt, where he runs into his friend, Book, and his mom, the underutilized Annette Benning. Through Book, Perot is invited to a lavish wedding, where a vicious love triangle is being played out by heiress Lynette Ridgway, Gal Gadot, Simon Doyle, Army Hammer, and her former best friend and Simon's ex, Jacqueline Belfort, Emma McKee. Perot is soon faced with a murder, a fun movie worth seeing. The special effects were well done. It was filmed in England. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Emily Flick. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Teresa Yen, Brenda Conkle and Dylan Brogan, and Nicholas Leet for technical production. Victor Calzoni engineered the show, Nate Weggiehout produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Nick Dodge. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.
Marcus? What is wart? Wart, W-O-R-T, correct.